0: Hi, everyone, and welcome to another episode of From the Lighthouse. We've got a special for you today. It's very much a departure from our usual format. Um, The English department was recently involved in a conference over in Fudan in China, and a bunch of our staff presented um, what we called an afternoon of wine writing and song. And so we thought we'd bring you the audio of that today because there's some really wonderful readings as well as um, some performances by a Chinese opera singer, which is very special. Um, so in terms of our staff that were involved from, with the event, um, we had Toby Davidson, um, we had Jane Messer, we had Suming Ming-To, um, and we also had the opera singer Su Qin yu And so I hope you really enjoy this event today. Um, You'll hear who's speaking and what they're reading from. As as the event goes on, you'll be able to hear the introductions to all of the speakers. So I won't talk to you for much longer. But it's a bit of a break um, from our usual format. And we hope you enjoy hearing some stories from some of our staff and hearing an event brought to you all the way from China. Uh, We'll see you again very soon. Thank you. Bye.
1: okay hi everyone thanks so much for coming out under um, trying conditions and the day after the hottest day in Shanghai history I believe and um, and thanks so much to Emma on the Bund for uh, allowing us to be here and to assuming for putting all this together um, rather than completely try to sum up Australian literature now in 10 minutes um, which would be quite a feat I'm, I'm going to do um, a bit of a, a reading in just a moment Um But really what's happening in 21st century Australian literature broadly, with some broad brushstrokes, is a really interesting um, confluence of a a lot of different um, sort of demographic threads. We're seeing um, the gradual rise of Asian Australian literature and anthologies of Asian Australian writing and far more transnational writers. And we'll get a taste of that later um, um, when I'm going to be um, reading a bit of um, Yang Yu, the um, the, um, the, um, Chinese-Australian poet. Accompanied um, uh, by Sujean, and, um, and uh, but also we're seeing types of uh, literature that we haven't seen before, um, as well as um, time-honored um, uh, works such as uh, Richard Flanagan's novel uh, *The Narrow Road to the Deep North*, that won the Booker Prize recently. Um, so, and we're also starting to see a lot more um, uh, a lot more experimentation in in film, theatre, uh, children's literature. And, uh, and also television in, uh, and, and many other forms, uh, particularly poetry as well. Um, and it's inter- interesting to see what, what's also getting out now in the internet age, the access that people have now, um, as well as authors that live lives, um, you know, that are more transnational and that also involve far more um, sort of cross-cultural backgrounds of their own or those they uh, encounter as, as they go along. Um So we're starting to see um, all kinds of different types of literature and the the further we go forward, in some ways also the further we can go back. And um, we see this, um, for example, in in the um, TV series that's on currently in the second season on um, Australian television called Clever Man, uh, which um, is is set as a dystopian um, sci-fi Aboriginal um, uh, uh, production set in the future But it also draws upon um, ancestral um, stories and tales from uh, central Australia um, from from time immemorial. And we're also starting to see really a a golden age of Aboriginal writing in Australia in a large way. So what I would like to do is, rather than um, lecture, to actually read, Um, and we've we've come through a lot of uh, uh, lectures and and papers, so um, I I wanted to read the opening um, two pages of Alexis Wright's Carpenteria which uh, in uh, 2006 won the Miles Franklin Award. I think it, won the two, it was published in 2006, won the 2007 Miles Franklin Award, which is the award for the, um, the best Australian novel. It's, it's the most um, prestigious award you can win as an Australian novelist in Australia. And um, in the beginning of this, um, and of course we have our river setting here, we have a type of literature we haven't quite seen before, a kind of an Aboriginal epic that goes for 600 pages, but also has this um, ancestral beginning of, of, of this river... Um, in the Gulf of Carpenteria, in the north of Australia as well, where they have sort of cyclonic and tropical conditions as well. And it's also where uh, Alexis Wright is from. So um, we're starting to see um, also in particularly in film, it's a golden age of Aboriginal directors as well, and uh, theatre and also children's literature, a lot of Aboriginal writing coming through, which is also increasingly becoming translated. And Alexis Wright's Carpenteria, for example, has been translated into Mandarin. Um, and is in, in and, and several languages of Europe as well, and is, um, is, is um, we 're starting to see i guess Australian writing travel further than ever before, and of course new forms and new hybridities, uh, new transnationalisms, new impulses that are coming to the boil, which give us um, brilliant new forms as well as uh, perhaps new brilliances and variations on on the forms that we 've been traditionally a bit more used to as well so I wanted to read just the, the very very beginning the very introduction of um, of the uh, the first Two pages, uh, and you can read the other, you know, 598, of um, Alexis Wright's Carpinteria. It's quite a journey, but it's often told in this, in this sort of oral tale. It's like she's talking to you directly. Um, and it begins with this long description of this um, ancestral serpent creating this, uh, the, this river uh, in, the, in the north of the Gulf of Carpinteria as a way of introducing this town in which all the action is set, a town called Desperance. Um, which is, um, I, I sort of end with the, um, the beginnings of the description of that town and its relationship to the land itself. So this is this is uh, Alexis Wright, and this is, I guess, what people were reading in 2006 when it was published by quite a small publisher, mainly known for poetry publishing, um, and this um, was, uh, you know, is, is, is still a major work and it will be, I think, remain a, a classic of 21st century Australian literature, um, you know, in, in perpetuity. So, chapter one, from time immemorial. The ancestral serpent, a creature larger than storm clouds, came down from the stars, laden with its own creative enormity. It moved graciously if you had been watching with the eyes of a bird hovering in the sky far above the ground. Looking down at the serpent's wet body, glistening from the ancient sunlight, long before man was a creature who could contemplate the next moment in time. It came down those billions of years ago to crawl on its heavy belly all around the wet clay soils in the Gulf of Carpinteria. Picture the creative serpent, scoring deep into, scouring down through, the slippery underground of the mudflats, leaving in its wake the thunder of tunnels collapsing to form deep sunken valleys. The seawater following in the serpent's wake, swarming in a frenzy of tidal waves, soon changed colour from ocean blue to the yellow of mud. The water filled the swirling tracks to form the mighty bending rivers spread across the vast plains of the Gulf Country. The serpent travelled over the marine plains, over the salt flats, through the salt dunes, past the mangrove forests and crawled inland. Then it went back to the sea and it came back at another spot along the coastline and crawled inland and then back again. When it finished creating the many rivers in its wake, it created one last river, no larger or smaller than the others, a river which offers no apologies for its discontent with people who do not know it. This is where the giant serpent continues to live deep under the ground in a vast network of limestone aquifers. They say its being is porous. It permeates everything. It is all around in the atmosphere and is attached to the lives of the river people like a skin. The inside knowledge about this river and coastal region is the Aboriginal law handed down through the ages since time began. Otherwise, how would one know where to look for the hidden underwater courses in the vast flooding mud plains full of serpents and fish in the monsoon season? Can someone who did not grow up in a place that is sometimes underwater, sometimes bone dry, know when the trade winds blowing off the southern and northern hemispheres will merge in summer? know the moment of climactic change better than they know themselves? Who fishes in the, in the yellow-coloured monsoonal runoff from the drainages with sheets of deep water pouring into the wide rivers, swolling over their banks, filling vast plains with floodwaters? The cyclones linger and regroup. The rain never stops pouring, but the fat fish are abundant. It takes a particular kind of knowledge to go with the river, whatever its mood. It is about there being no difference between you and the movement of the water as it seasonally shifts its tracks according to its own mood. A river that spurns human endeavour in one dramatic gesture, jilting a lover who has never really been known, as it did to the frontier town built on its banks in the hectic heyday of colonial vigour. A town intended to serve as a port for the shipping trade for the hinterland of northern Australia. In one moment, during a wet season early in the last century, The town lost its harbour waters when the river simply decided to change course to bypass it by several kilometres, just like that. Now, the waterless port survives with more or less nothing to do. Its citizens continue to engage in a dialogue with themselves, passed down through the generations, on why the town should continue to exist. OK. Thank you. So that's from Alexis Wright's *Carpenteria*, and she's, of course, written um, another novel which is even more ambitious and a dystopian one set in the future, which draws also on European uh, myths and other ones from around the world called The Swan Book, all about swans, which also deals with climate change and many other things. Um, And so as she's looking forward, she's also drawing on um, the the past and the ancestral past. And uh, I just saw... um, from my hotel room on CNN, that you know, find has been made in, in, in the Kakadu area of artefacts that can now be traced to 65,000 years um, when Aboriginal people first came to Australia, so far that they know. Uh, and um, you know, it, 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 I presume it will still go further and further back. Um, and so what we're starting to see is as Australian literature go forward, goes forward, it can also look back further and further. Uh, as as time goes on and we're starting to see all kinds of new forms, all kinds of new types of writers um, and uh, all kinds of fascinating um, hybridities and incredible talents that uh, make no apologies for their brilliance. So I'll leave it there. Thank you.
2: Okay, we we... um Throwing you into contemporary times now. Thank you, Toby. That was such a beautiful reading of Alexis's work and she is an amazing writer. Um, So this is from my novel Hopscotch. I'm going to read two short extracts. The first one um, concerns one of the five main characters, Sam, a father, Sam Rosen. He, um, all you need to know in terms of context is that he's sort of stuck at home a lot now because he has a degenerative disease. He's 69. He's quite grumpy and bitter about it. Um, He's he's actually perhaps not as sick as he feels. Um, So he's an academic. He lived and worked in the States when he was younger and they've just done some work outside. Um, There's a cement path that's wet outside. Um, The cat is annoying him. Samuel Rosen's eye was caught by the flutter of serrated, wintered leaves kicking across the slope of the lawn outside. To everything there is a season, he said aloud in his deepest, most sardonic voice. This year he was feeling the cold. A year would do. One year was as much time as Sam needed to give Ronnie and the children their last birthday gifts to celebrate Christmas and any other special days that might arise between this signally sunny, brittle-lit afternoon and his last. Sam liked those family celebrations more than they knew. He really did savour his seat at the head of the oak dining table with his children arrayed either side. Even after you were dead, you were still a father. There was no grandchildren yet, and Sam Rosen was sad about this. That alone was reason enough to live past a year. Should he wait for a grandchild? Could he bear to? And what state would he be in by then? Would he be able to hold a baby on his shoulder and pat its small back? Of course, if it were a boy child, they would have him circumcised. He might be a lapsed Jew, but he'd be adamant. Sam knew that in Ronnie's heart of hearts, Ronnie being his wife, that down amongst the little sweet bits that she didn't show him because he'd trounced them, his wife treasured an irrational belief that 21st century children... Forgot grandchildren. Sam wasn't holding his breath for grandchildren, not for that long. He'd said that to Ronnie. He wasn't holding his breath. Suffocation with this disease was no joke. Everything outside in the front garden seemed to have stopped or was rushing through its season. Sam blinked. Is that what he'd just seen, an intake and holding of winter's breath? He wouldn't need brass fittings or satin padding. A cardboard coffin, corrugated, sturdy, something like the cardboard that Japanese architect made for Rwandan refugee camps. He wanted to be as biodegradable as possible. Oh, he was a funny man, he thought. Sardonic. His friends had laughed for years. Sometimes the tiredness rose to bury him in its sludge. The light was good here by the window. And the book on Shanghai was interesting. And yes, I really did say that in the original. But his thoughts tended to drift. Truthfully, he was half asleep. Old men without illness slept in the daytime, but this penetrating exhaustion was disease. Yet he would live more than a year or even two. The disease wanted to drag him slowly through its mud and its mire, not quick and resolute like a head-on incontrovertible hug-the-pole car crash, but slowly, through the peat bog, bumpity-bump over older colleagues' and friends' corpses. Beef, bog and leaf litter to everything there is a season. Through the living room window, Sam could see the cat Misha crossing the new wet concrete. The concrete is gone but ten minutes ago. Ears shifting. Nose sniffing, five kilos of lean and masterly muscle, short fur and set feline ways. But Jesus, if his paw prints weren't marking the surface. Sam pushed the sash window up and open with his still good arms. He would not be losing his sight. All Sam's effort went into this movement of holding his balance forward, his eyes blazing and squinting. The sun was low and bright. Sun in his eyes the turpentine's leaves sparkling with oil in the breeze, a kookaburra laughing at him, kooka-ha-ha-ha. A kookaburra laughs at an old man in his late 60s for whom the 60s were a high point. There had been whole weeks, he thought, were hysterically funny back then. He was certain it was the LSD that he'd taken in Palo Alto and Stanford 40 years ago that had predisposed him to the disease his self-administered neuronic toxin, his motor neurone poisoning. Neuronic was a word he'd made up. Kookaburras were all right. They were native, unlike Misha. Surely this slow petrification of his muscles epitomised his choice to live with Ronnie in Safe Lane Cove, suburb of Federation bungalows and 1970s wood-decked Don's bawdy party homes and swimming pools, whole streets of dazed boredom, cheery plazas, golf courses and clandestine bushland. He had ready access to excellent private and public teaching hospitals. Their doctor, Kutlu, was still willing to home visit and bulk bill. Lane Cove was a suburb that suggested that good sense and balance was always preferable. For having the time of his life in his neuronic 20s, He was going to be made to die in Lane Cove. The cat stopped when he saw Sam squinting at him from the house, staring back enigmatically and vixen-eyed and then danced a kittenish jig and scratched the wet concrete. Well, thought Sam, his claws would stiffen when the cement stuck dry to them. The breeze turned pushing about the crinkled leaves, gathering them, lifting and swirling them. The breeze dropped. The leaves settled. Not a new gust, now a new gust, brought a sharp smell. Sam looked away from the leaves he'd been watching to Misha, the cat, who was sniffing all around where he had peed. The cat squatted. Damn cat, yelled Sam in his most aggrieved baritone. With effort, he turned away from the window and picked up the first object to hand, the black teledex from next to the phone, and threw it at Misha outside. Misha dived, bounding into the shrubs as the phone book broke apart, its pages cracked open at R or S or T at one of their children's new numbers or some elderly friend whose name and address his wife had struck through after they had died with the faintest and most solicitous of pencil marks. She didn't realise that Sam noticed these wickets. Sam knew what would happen next. He reached for his stick just a foot too far away. Plans were important. Plan where to place the stick, the reading glasses, plan it all. He would speedily make his way to the cat door and lock it, keep the cat out. Sam took his walking stick in hand. Turns could be difficult. They had to be paced. Foot must follow foot but not so slowly that the rhythm was lost and he tripped. Music therapy. His physio had loved it until she'd heard some of his tunes. The blues, slave work songs, lonely hearts, she didn't get it, Janis Joplin's ball and chain. Sam hummed a little over here, over there, until he found Armstrong's What a Wonderful World. The swing in the lines got him across the parquet, the rubber of his sticks squeaking on the wood in the up, And down of his disease, this was a bad day. At last, here were the terracotta tiles of the kitchen with that dangerous metal rim where the parquet met tile. One last year with you cat, said Sam, whacking his stick across the cat flap to close it as he cautiously bent his tall body in half and then crouched right down onto the floor, so as to slide the door firmly across the rubber flap. He had beat the cat to it. There, shut. He was down and the tiles were cold. Sam found that he could not get up again. His trousers were thin. The eucalypt breeze came in coolly from the living room window. He hoped Ronnie would not be too long at the shops. He was stuck. So that's Sam... Sam has a mid-30s son, Mark, who's desperately unhappy working for uh, an IT company. This little extract is set um, in Dubai. uh, Mark and his wife, Ingrid, um, are in Dubai because Mark has um, been flown out by his big company for a high achievers week. Um, So this should be good. But actually what is happening is that Mark is getting this massive bonus. He's been sent to Dubai. They're having this wonderful week. But he's actually in the process of being sacked and his wife kind of gets, is reading the picture better than he is. Um, So this conversation between him and Ingrid in their hotel room takes place uh, after he's put another foot in it and he's beaten his boss at tennis. You shouldn't have done that. Said Ingrid, aghast when he told her about it after returning to their suite in a pleasing sweat. She was lying back on the sumptuous bed reading Pregnancy magazine. She's just newly pregnant, which is she's really happy about and he's not, but he's not telling her that he's not happy. And clicking her way through an array of colourful prams on her iPad. Don't ever beat the boss. She leapt from the bed and, rifling through his business magazines, pulled out his Business Review Weekly, From the article, How Not to Beat Your Boss at Golf, she read, which you clearly did not read, don't be a moron, let him win. Some people will tell you that your boss will respect you more if you compete as an equal. These people are wrong. As a wise man once said, lose in an unassuming way and keep your job another day. She dropped the magazine beside him. Read it for next time, it's too late now. That was it. That was the moment from which Dubai unravelled, the moment at which his financial crisis took off. The year is uh, the year of the GFC in this novel. Her reprimand was the butterfly that was the downfall of the American economy and then Europe and then everyone else so that the next day, Dubai Day 4, in his iPhone calendar, he would read online subprime credit crunch crisis and other combinations of those same threats. And on morning television, watch good American families putting their worldly possessions into their SUV and abandoning home and mortgage. And at last, and ever so slowly, Mark would make the connection that this butterfly would have tsunami impacts on his property property investments in Jumaya Village, uh, Dubai, the Docklands, Melbourne, and even D.Y. Sydney. The morning after the awards night, these grim thoughts sat sprinkled in his breakfast cereal like Sultana's in the Special K. Mark watched his cereal soften to sog, the little shits of Sultana's swelling while he contemplated the effect the crisis was sure to have on his investments. Was it too late to convert to cash? Could you please slurp less noisily, Ingrid asked. She walked past him to their bedroom her hand on her belly. Mark lay on the bed a little bit later, alternately speechless and self-blaming. I shouldn't have played tennis with him, he said. He grabbed his phone, punched in a few words to his boss. Who won those contracts? Say that again. Who won those contracts? From her side of the bed, Ingrid handed him a bottle of water. I shouldn't have played that tennis with him, he said again. And then he shouldn't have sent that text that he'd just sent. He grabbed his phone, hoping he'd get the message. Failed. Didn't send. Shut up about the tennis, she said. You'd already beaten him at the sandboarding, so why did you have to go and rub it in with the tennis? You're not being exactly supportive, Mark whined. Because I'm infuriated. How dumb is it to beat your boss at two sports? He could have beaten me at golf, but he didn't. It's too hot to play here. He's so insecure. Some men are so pathetic. Ingrid paused not you daddy in the making she smiled quickly he's a complete bastard oh what am I going to do Mark rolled off the bed head in his hands and slid down until he was sitting on the floor he could hear Ingrid's intake of breath as she gathered herself to reassure him felt the mattress shift as she swung herself across its kingly expanse she hugged him and murmured inanities "'It's all right. "'Whatever this means, whatever happens, it'll be okay, okay?' "'Clearly she didn't believe her own words "'because in a moment she was up and pacing the floor. "'There goes the pram I wanted. "'There goes the new nursery fit-out. "'There goes the mother care nurse.' "'Mark looked up. "'What?' "'Ingrid gazed down at him scornfully and then pityingly. "'Mark, you're going to lose your job. "'Obviously, that's what it all means.' Mark went cold again, something to do with being drenched inside with an eons-old chemical reaction to sudden bad news, something to do with the spectre of death, the first pain of the screws turn on the rack or the sound of the button when your head's in the bowl and the bowl is to be flushed. How could she know he was going to lose his job? What would you know, he said. Common sense. You can't complain now. You've got your bonus. you got your week. But he didn't say your name on the stage, so clearly you're out, Not naming you was a very clear message, very clear. But it wasn't clear. I won the contract. That's what I've been paid. That's why I'm here. I mean, why else was I at the table? Mark couldn't countenance it, that he was going to lose his job now after a year of worry. that had been for nothing. It seemed to have been just his typical unnecessary anxiety once he was added to the Dubai list of high achievers. Who are you going to complain to? A union? She groaned a sound of frustration at his ineptitude. It's so effing clear what has just gone down. She never swore. We're going to be poor, poor. She threw the business review weekly at him. There'll be recruiters advertising there, read it. After she'd swept from the bedroom out to the suite, Mark crawled across the floor to where the magazine had fallen and slowly tore each page to shreds into smaller and smaller pieces of paper that he piled into an unlit par on the carpet. Thank you.
1: Thanks, Xiumin. Uh, Xiumin, and thanks, Jane. Um, I mean me this time. And um, I should say that um, Jane's novels, in fact, uh, works by all of us are over there in the corner um, later on for sale, so, you know... Mm -hmm. Make us an offer, as they say. Um, I'm going to read just some short lyric pieces because they go quite well with the heat, and these were uh, mainly written as a result of the West Australian heat um, some years back. Um, so these are all Indian Ocean and and southwest Western Australia, Margaret River area um, pieces, um, and uh, so maybe some immersion in the forest and the ocean might be called for today. Uh, so um, I'll go for some of these shorter pieces, and then um, there's also a late dream about Plato. Um, I'm hoping for once the audience never gets any of the jokes in in Australia, so I'm I'm, I'm counting on you. (laughs) Okay, so the first one's called, uh, and and don't worry about applauding to the end, please. Um, It's called um, Indian Ocean Dedication. She has the genius of an ear, splitting hairs with either mind. Her blood is my out-of-body experience. Her experience hissing fathomless. Talent all her will. Her loss, the first of darknesses, a cloud before the waters set to life, her clear fire sound into the forest. This is called Night Forest, uh, Pemberton. Machete legs, succinct as worms now, seep beneath encroaching afterthoughts of habitat. Ferns reclaim their lace composure, dampening to a rot. Pricking oxygen, baskets of starfruit pass as if overhead. Thickening mud on sonic mime collapses, sweet insect champagne, surfing flutes of purple fuzz on Micah Moontide's Van Gogh gleam till something twigs inside, eons deep, its secret heart. This is called Rinse. Superbly anonymous, I move in moods from deep wherein I am. Gothic cinders stream the sun, I want to belong to one great swaying lung, antiquity's circular stem. Balance our turbulence, harbour a soft stroke, sweep me up in your tumbling glade. No one thirsts quite like the ocean. Mother tongue, I see the wings of your lines. I feel the sun make its nest, clean. Manta of night, peacock, flamingo, I'll be anti-phoenix of North Narab. Scatter me dazzling, where wave patterns purse and hiss in an X like a nucleus, flown in four to the bays of night. Okay, This is called uh, Plato at the Pictures. You don't have to laugh, it's okay. Okay. Um, This is a strange dream I had about sitting and watching an Arnie film um, uh, next to Plato, who I I knew was Plato but couldn't quite see. So this is called Plato at the Pictures. For the briefest of moments, a glimmering sketch. I incline my right cheekbone one degree, untransfixed by the knowledge of him, the frame of his arm, his crumpled penumbra, a whisker, perhaps. As much in character as anything else, I ask my new buddy, the vague auditorium, the rippling, piercing, green exit signs, so what's the idea of a Schwarzenegger? Ploughman's arts, not of earth? Dialogue strays, indisposed for a punchline. Whoa, honeyed silver, we rise before the titles. I'll finish Back in the Ocean, where I began, where we all began. Uh, this appeared a few years ago in um, Best Australian Poems, as annual anthology, um, and it's, uh, it's called uh, H2. Home is, then the heart is. Home is a poem halved. Home is making peace where the ocean killed a man with a shark. Peace is shadows listing on a grassy path. Paths are wet feet welding, home to heal at last. Press kiss, home is, torn love, birthmarked. All right, thank you very much. Okay, so. um...
3: What we want to do now is, in some ways, I guess, uh, a duet between Qin and me. Um, uh, Qin has recorded some um, Chinese folk songs, which are available on her album, Lotus Moon, as well as Willow Spirit Songs. And we had talked for quite some time about me writing accompanying short stories for these songs, Um, The the idea was not necessarily to repeat the narrative behind the songs, but just to take one element of it and spin it into something else. So this is what we're going to do. Okay, so the first song that Shuchim is going to sing is called Swallow. Swallow Three Swallows. First swallow, hope. My father promised my mother a restaurant of her own if only she would migrate with him to Sydney. The Three Swallows Hotel in the Southwest was not what she expected. She looked at its urine-stained, beige-tiled exterior, where puke could be pressure-hosed down in the morning. She sniffed. (laughs) The peeling wood veneer interior and the dark-framed pictures of birds were a feeble nod to the pub's name. The dizzying blues, blacks, and greys copulating on the carpet brought a disdainful lift of her brow. "'Why?' she asked. "'It was the name,' she said. "'Your name?' "'Yansi.' "'Swallow.' "'And there's three of us. "'It was a good omen.' "'She said nothing.' She knotted her apron, fitted a cap over her hair, tugged on rubber gloves, and got to work cleaning out the grease-caked grills and deep-frying wells. Three weeks later, she flipped burger patties, played at chicken Palmer, dunked and lifted sizzling baskets of dripping fries and calamari rings, prepared rump steaks for $10 Thursdays. In the mornings, she kneaded and rolled dough, stamped out rounds of pastry with a small porcelain bowl, and taught me to pinch together white-fleshed purses of pork and spinach dumplings for our lunch. I wasn't allowed to be in the pub after 6 p.m., but really, who was around to enforce this rule anyway? I was small enough to hide under the pool table, to squeeze in between a drooping palm and the ringing pokey machines. I liked to watch my father and the other bartender pulling drafts, squirting coke through snaking steel hoses into glasses of bourbon. I liked it when the shaggy-haired engineering students came in and racked up the pool tables. Engineer rhymes with beer. Skull, 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 they chanted. I watched their muscled throats working, swigging, swilling, swallowing. Three gulps slammed the schooner glass down and uh, swiped the back of the hand across unshaven mouths. That's why it was called the three swallows. Or so I thought back then. Ah, said my father to my mother, this is great. We're going to make it work. Second swallow, flight. You can find swallows on every continent except for Antarctica. The welcome swallow is native to Australia and mostly stays put here, except for colonising New Zealand. But there are other swallows that are just passing through. The Pacific swallow, white white-backed swallow, barn swallow, and wood swallow. They're sojourners rather than migrants, they come and make their home here for a while, and then they wing their way back north. During the summer when my mother disappeared, a swallow crashed into the glass sliding door of our back patio. I was sitting on a chair physics textbook open on my lap, wondering whether my mother had actually returned to China for a visit, as she told us. Her relatives and shaman claimed they had not heard from her. The bird shot through the magnolia tree in our backyard and smashed into the door. Glass splintered and the bird dropped onto the concrete pavers. Dad raced outside, brown plastic slippers flapping against his white socked heels. He knelt beside the stunned bird. It's a swallow, he told me. What kind, Dad? I don't know. He slid a cracked brown palm under the light body and stroked a finger over its orange face and blue feathered back. We looked it up on the internet that night. It was a welcome swallow, rather rare this far south. Dad made a little nest for it out of mud and dried grass. He bought a bug zapper and from Bunnings Warehouse and trapped insects at night, which he then tweezered into the swallow's open mouth. I drew a picture of it, and Dad framed it and put it up in the pub. A week later, I came home to find Dad's carefully crafted nest empty. I thought I saw the swallow a couple more times perched on electricity wires outside our house, and then I didn't see it again. Swallows are called birds of freedom, Dad said. They can't bear captivity and they will only mate in the wild. Third swallow, return. A swarm of swallows rippling through the sky is called a murmuration. Dad and I saw this spectacle when we went to North Queensland for a holiday when I graduated with an engineering degree. We were standing at the bottom of a hill when suddenly clouds of swallows rose. Rose from behind the crest, swelling and surging into the evening sky. Dense nets dancing in algorithmic rhythms, curling and breaking like black waves, swirling in inky billows until, with plaintive calls and a susceration of wings, they dissolved like smoke into the darkening horizon. A few years later, Dad deeded the three swallows to me and bought a ticket to Shaman. Was he searching for mum? He wouldn't say. I hugged him goodbye. And stood in the departure hall of Sydney Airport, watching the murmuration of migrants ebbing and flowing around him. He turned and raised a hand in farewell, and then a tide of tourists engulfed him and swept him into the doors, um, through the into the immigration hall, and out of my sight. A month later, I renamed the pub the Welcome Swallow and waited for the return of the birds. So the next song that shuchin will, uh, will sing is um, a song by a little-known but very beautiful um, Australian composer, British-Australian composer, called Horace Keats. Um, so the song is My Dark-Eyed Akushla, and Akushla, of course, means um, darling in Irish. the blue a kushler of the goldfields. During the 1850s gold rush in Victoria, at least 50 European women married Chinese men. Many of these women were Irish. The number of these relationships grew throughout all the colonies to the extent that such unions formed a part of the New South Wales government's 1891 Royal Commission on Alleged Chinese Gambling and Immorality. In defence of these interracial unions, the Reverend Francis Hopkins suggested... A Chinaman's Anglo-Saxon wife is almost his god. A European's is his slave. This is the reason why so many girls transfer their affections to the almond-eyed celestials. The commission concluded that it would be impossible to say that these women had not improved their surroundings by crossing the racial line. The story is based on this history. Ballarat, 1853. The first time I see him is among the John Chinamen Da calls the celestials when he's just knocked back a couple of pints. By the time he's tied on a few, they're just bloody chows to him. Look, Da, I say, pointing to the round shafts and the brown-skinned men climbing out of the crumbling mouth. Why don't they square off the sides of the mining shaft like we do? Because they're bloody chows, clodid me, darling, Da says and spits They come and take our leftover tailings after we do all the bloody hard work, Akushla. I notice the celestial because his face is marred with a big brown birthmark, the shape of a shamrock, just under his left eye. I smile at him because he's flawed, just like me, except maybe I'd rather have my limp from the polio than a splotch on my face. He sees me looking at him and he holds out something. It's a pebble crackled with gold. It's beautiful, I say. Can I have it, Da? It's the first bit of gold we've seen all week. Da spits again and he turns away so he won't have to look at the John Chinaman. Of course you can, Akushla. The first time I see her, she's dragging her, her caged leg across the churned up earth of the gold fields, staggering after her father. I've seen him around. I know his pattern by now. He starts to sink a shaft but hasn't the patience to work it. He finds a tiny teacup full of gold-veined rocks and then it's off to the nearest pub in town. After the last time, he returned with his daughter. Her pinafore is torn and smudged with dirt. Her face is pinched with pain, but she looks at me and beams. I offer her the first nugget I found today. Her brown eyes are bright with delight. Melbourne, 1863. Liam has promised to buy me silk ribbons from the Victoria markets to trim my gown. That's where I see the Celestial again. I recognize him because of the shamrock on his face. He's hauling baskets of Sydney oysters from a cart onto a trestle table. Hello then, John, I say. Do you remember me from the goldfields? I'm laughing because I'm 17 and about to be married. You are the Akushla, he says. I still have the pebble you gave me, I tell him, was my first bit of gold. He starts to wrap oysters for me, but Liam grabs my hand and tugs me away. There was no reason for me to return to China. They told me what my wife died of cholera and eldest brother has adopted my son. The boy was never mine. I did not name him. The family did. I have not seen him since he was five months old. I see her again five years after my wife died and my son became my brothers. I offer her oysters but she's in love, and she needs nothing from me. Melbourne, 1864. I stumble over her early one morning in Kites Lane, just off Littleburg Street. She slumped against garbage, like old rags thrown out. Her skirts are rucked up around her thighs, and I start to look away, but then I notice the blood. So much blood on her thighs, on her gown, on the ground. I see the twist of wire clutched in her right hand. There is nobody to help. I unload my baskets and lift her onto my cart. I bring her home and clean her up. I knock on Sung's door. His wife brews herbal tea with red flowers and red dates for her. When I return to Kite's Lane, my baskets of fish are gone. He doesn't ask me to leave even after the fever breaks. I hate him because he wants me to live. I ignore him, but he keeps tending to me. I scream at him, but he doesn't yell back. Why can't you bloody say something then, I shout, and I throw the bowl of bitter tea at him. My name is not John, he says, as he wipes his face with a towel. He stoops to pick up shards of porcelain from the floor. I am Ren Yee. By and by, I get out of bed and knock on Mrs. Song's door. I ask her to teach me how to cook rice. Melbourne, 1865. In the centre of Melbourne, the streets angle upwards, east and west, from the spine of Swanston Street. In the mornings, when the street cleaning machines slosh water down the the wood-paved roads, metal filings, dirt, and oil-slicked water run down to Swanston Street, gushing into the stinking Yarra River. The cabbies curse and rein their horses sharply left and right zigzagging heavy carriages up the slippery slopes of collins street and burke street hills one misty winter's dawn when the sky is pewter gray and the sun a silver sliver behind low clouds reny the costermonger, hauls his baskets of fish off his cart and into restaurants on russell street as he turns and steps onto collins street he hears a horse shrieking and a rumbling like an avalanche of wood and steel he looks up and sees the horse's hooves striking and slipping on the wet wooden pavers. The traces of the carriage strain and snap, and the heavy load hurtles down the hill toward him. He steps back and falls, twisting his leg. The basket overturns, and fish slide out around him, scales gleaming briefly before fresh flesh is crushed by iron-rimmed wheels. Three toes on his right foot have to be amputated, When they bring him home, I tend to him. I clean his house, and I run his business. When he finally recovers, he walks with a limp just like me. On the night I throw my crutches away, she comes to me and fits her lips to mine. Afterwards, she takes my hand and presses a pebble into it. I recognize the size and shape. She tells me that I will make a ring for her and marry her. Why, I ask. She cups the left side of my face and rubs her thumb over my birthmark. Maya Kushler, she says. Okay, so the next song that Shuchin is going to sing is the Feng Yang Flower Drum Song.
4: 手落有手鼓<音>
3: so. My cousins, Hui and Sasa and I have very little in common apart from big feet and the shared experience of being annually humiliated by our relatives during the Chinese New Year visitations because of our single status. Every year, our uncle Ch- um, Su chortles. There is a universal proverb, girls, never marry a woman with big feet. This seems rather unfair to us as it was his mother our grandmother, who blessed us with our size 12s, her own cotton-shod canoes with the stuff of family legend. Our grandfather, Kohat Singh, was sent to Malaya to work the rubber plantations near Penang when he was 16. At the age of 19, the matchmaker in his hometown of Kulangyu promised to find him a wife. He asked for a Hui'an woman, even though he'd never met one before. He'd heard that Huyan, just south of Trancho in Fujian province, had beautiful women who wore short, colorful jackets, covered their hair with scarves and conical bamboo hats, and, most importantly, did all the work instead of the men. His bride arrived some 16 months later. He did not expect a young girl with the classic three-inch golden lotus feet, but neither was he prepared for a squat, broad-faced woman with large feet who was clearly older than he. If he'd been in Huyan, he might have married her and sent her back to her mother's house until she gave birth to her fir- their first child, which would be never if it was up to him. But they were in Malaya. The matchmaker had his bride money, and there was no choice but to go ahead and marry Tanling. He was even angrier with the matchmaker when he realized that Tan Ling could not cook or mend his clothes, let alone sew him a new suit for Chinese New Year. You're a useless wife, he told her. A woman with big feet who can't sew. You're no great catch either, she said. I wanted to marry a scholar. Instead, I got a rubber tapper. Tap, tap, tapping the leaking rubber tree all day long for sap. He felt emasculated. He had to cook and clean for her. And she bullied him into massaging her fleshy feet at night. The birth of four sturdy sons mollified him somewhat. But it was only when his sons grew into adolescence that he realized the advantages of his wife's big feet. She clutched the rattan handle of a feather duster and chased her four boys around the granite kitchen table, screaming at them to do their homework. see! she shrieked. see! Her mammoth feet slapped the tiled floor with a swift shawl grip and kicked out forcefully at the boys. Rooster feathers exploded in angry clouds of black and green as she slashed the duster at their recalcitrant backsides. Any grade below an A was unacceptable. They were caned into academic excellence. They won scholarships to university. They graduated and escaped to Sydney and Melbourne. They procreated and produced, among many children, the three of us with our grandmother's big feet. Huyen didn't mind. She was inspired by Ian Thorpe. She loved having her own inbuilt flippers as she lapped the 50-meter Andrew Boy Charlton pool at Wollamaloo each morning. Sasa and I, however, had greater difficulty reconciling ourselves to our feet. Shopping for shoes was a nightmare. Everything had to be specially ordered. During her 20s, Sasa crammed her long toes into stilettos that were too small. During her 30s, Sasa searched the internet for bunion correctors, toe separators, and ingenious devices that straightened out her hammer toes. I resigned myself to getting my feet stepped on while waiting for the train on the crowded platform at Town Hall Station. I wore cherry red Doc Martens that might stand out and I ended up looking like Ronald McDonald instead. My boyfriend thought it was funny. You know what they say about women with big feet, he sniggered. I summoned my inner tiger grandmother and glared at him. What? I became suspicious of his possible foot fetish and broke up with him shortly after that. There's an anthropologist who says that the Karo Batak men from Sumatra in Indonesia much prefer women with big feet, Sasa told me one day. Really? She scanned the magazine article she was reading. The Karo Batak men say, why would anyone like a woman with small feet? How would she work in the rice paddy? It seemed to me that there were no advantages at all to possessing big feet. That is, until the day I was nearly mugged by a kid who should have been at school, at 11 on a weekday morning, I screamed and stomped my massive Doc Martin boots onto his Nike sneakers. He howled and limped away. That afternoon, I decided to learn self defense. I enrolled myself into a Brazilian jiu jitsu class near my apartment in Concord, and it was only then that enlightenment dawned and I realized the purpose for which my big feet had been created. Watching videos at the dojo of BJJ champions Ricardo de la Riva Goded and Antonio Nino Chembri, I understood that my feet were so big that they could grip together like interlocking hooks whenever I performed a mount or guard. So, next Chinese New Year, when Uncle Chu Su starts to recite his universal proverb, I will fantasize about flipping him on his back and semi-castrating him with a butterfly or a spider guard crushing his ribcage with my gigantic big hooks. And then, perhaps, I shall buy myself an airline ticket to Sumatra to check out those Karabatak men. <laughs> Thank you. Thank okay. you. Okay, our final pairing is actually um, Toby Davidson again and Shooting You, and they are going to... Um, Read a poem in Chinese and um, English, uh, written by the Chinese Australian poet Ouyang oh Yu.
1: Okay. Um, okay. So these um, it, these are a couple of uh, poems from Ouyang uh, Yu, who's a Chinese Australian poet, translator, scholar, many other things, polymath. And um, these are many poems actually that he, he wrote originally in Mandarin and then self translated into English and. Uh, those who are at the conference and saw my perceptive and very erudite paper on this will know um, that. Um, okay, no one took that seriously. Um, yeah, uh, that's uh, that's um, you know he uh, is someone who actually also translates quite fluidly as well, and actually enjoys the creative process of, of translation. So, um, what we're going to do is actually actually read it backwards. So um, I'm going to um, read, uh, and there, um, we're going to combine two river-based pieces, one on the Murray River. Uh, in Australia, and one about his childhood memories of the Yangtze, and um, going to read sort of parts in parts in English, and then Su is going to read them back in, um, in back Mandarin. in Mandarin. So um, okay, we'll begin. So this is it's just from self translation from uh, 2014, and uh, so the first one's called the Murray River, and then we'll just move seamlessly into another piece called um uh, untitled. The Murray River. I've read your name on a Chinese map which leaves on me a heavy, murky impression. But your torturous, thin features in my eyes are so different from your Chinese name, deviously running through the ochre Australian desert, eventually disappearing into it. You, the wanderer that never returns to the
5: sea. 我看着你那细瘦扭曲的身姿最后又消失在沙漠之中 As
1: I'm driving past the town of Tail and Bend The Murray emerges All of a sudden with a leap From the monotonous kangaroo-colored plain Exposing its bright shadows of dark green flowing southward at the bend. The freeway follows you to turn at the bend. The narrowness of the river reminds me of the shallow inner river formed by the sandbar that stood between it and my childhood Yangtze in winter.
5: 而今我驱车经过台湾的 bend the 看露出青绿色的亮影 拐着弯向南流去,高速公路跟着你拐弯. 狭窄的河面使我想起儿时长江在冬天被沙滩分割后留下的浅浅内流河.
1: Youthful days, we were going down the river, the course of which was torturous. No one knew where we were going. Beautiful were the torrential clouds, beautiful... "'Were the fully blooming waves. "'Beautiful were those roarings at night, "'those callings in the early mornings, "'and those high singings and low chantings. "'They were mud-coloured and murky. "'They were blue and pure. "'They were the heaven and the earth. "'The dead are forgotten. "'The living will join them. "'Flowing, now rapidly, now smoothly, flowing. "'We shall find our way to the ocean.'" just as the ocean will find the sky. No one pays any attention to some stranded on the shallow shore, some who have gone along the forest path, and others who cross themselves in silence. No one knows where they've come from, no one wants to retrace their steps, and no one can retrieve their youthful days flowing like this down the big river."
5: 你的水色是那样灰蒙蒙的怒放的浪花是美的在夜间在清晨流动着时而迅疾时而平缓谁也不知道打哪儿来谁也不想再回去 Cultural activities may enrich even more in the future. Thank you so much.
0: Thank you.
3: Thank you. Okay. Um, that actually brings our program to a close. Unless you want to hear one more song by Shu yeah? Okay. <laughs> All right. Okay, so Xu is going to sing a song which is not Australian, not, a, uh, not Chinese either, but just beautiful and fun.
5: <laughs> it's the operating aria. It's an all-time famous, Puccini. Oh, my beloved father.
4: Thank you 谢谢谢谢 Thank you, Thank you. Thank you. Thank you.